This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Hello, my name is Emily Binchy and I am a Global Europe researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs in Dublin. I'm delighted to be hosting an interview today as part of the IIEA's Global Europe project, supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs, which explores Ireland's role in Europe and Europe's place in the world. Today's discussion is the first in a two-part episode that will look at how Ireland and the European institutions changed and influenced each other's development over the past 50 years. I'm delighted to be joined by three people who are deeply familiar with the EU institutions and have kindly agreed to share their insights, reflections and thoughts with us today. Catherine Day, former Secretary General of the European Commission. Frank Wall, former Director in the Council of Ministers responsible for inter-institutional affairs and subsequently fisheries policy. And Francis Jacobs, former head of the European Parliament Liaison Office in Ireland. My first question to set the stage is to ask, what were the main changes which took place in the institutions of the then European Economic Community following Ireland's accession? Looking back um, and looking at where the institutions are now, it seems like a very different world. Um, When we joined in 1973, that was the first time the EU had enlarged. And I think it was quite a culture shock for everybody, both for the original six and then for the three newcomers. Um, First of all, there was very little use of English. French was the absolutely dominant working language in the commission. And um, we had um, a more inward looking uh, EU in the early days. So I think the arrival of the UK, Ireland and Denmark brought a more Anglo-Saxon worldview and a much more liberal and open approach to trade. And that started to have its effect. Um, Another thing that I recall is um, we joined for economic and political reasons, mainly economic reasons, I would think. But in shortly after, uh, in 1981, Greece joined, and then in 1986, uh, Spain and Portugal. So these were three countries that had come out of military dictatorship. And for them, the EU was very much a political aspiration and a bright light that had you know, helped them during the uh, military years. So I think um, within a very short space of 10 or 15 years from having been a very comfortable original six, the whole EU totally changed with the accession on the one hand of these uh, extreme Western countries and on the other hand, the Southern countries who'd come out of um, of military rule. Um, And that of course had a big effect on policy. Um, We also at the same time had the exit of Greenland, which nobody really talks about now, but it was an early departure of part of a member state at the time when uh, Greenland stayed with Denmark but left the EU. So a lot happening. I also recall in the Commission, there was always a slight feeling of it being tentative. Um, The example I always give is that on the Commission um, letterheads, it always gave our provisional address as 200 Rue de la Loi, as though we were only a temporary phenomenon. And um, it it had a kind of psychological effect because in the early years, the institutions had to make their way, they had to show their utility, um, and they had to establish their authority. And I I remember being mystified in my early years as to why so many commission officials went around with a copy of the Treaty of Rome tucked under their arm. 
but it was um, at regular occurrences to quote from the treaty the fact that the member states had given certain powers to the commission uh, to exercise on, on behalf of the union. And over the years, um, while I never liked to lay down the law too much, I always found it useful to be able to refer to uh, that treaty and subsequent treaties as, as um, the basis uh, on which to, to base decision-making. Um, maybe also as a former Secretary General, um, I recall the absolute awe in which the first Secretary General, Emile Noel, was held. Um, and I have to say that was never the case for any of his successors, but he had been there at the beginning. He was Secretary General for 30 years. He had shaped the way the commission worked and operated. And so um, for me, in my early years, there was this um, godlike creature locked away in the Berlimont who was spoken of with uh, reverence and uh, who very few people actually got to meet in person. So again, um, the bigger the EU became, uh, in a way, the more democratic it came. Um, people stayed in their jobs less time. It became important to establish ways of handing over, of documenting, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So my recollection of those early years, and I was very young and inexperienced at the time, was being plunged into a very different administrative culture, um, predominantly French speaking, with an already established way of thinking, which was then challenged by the new members. Um, and something that took us quite a while, I think, to find our feet in. Um, but we can talk more about that in a moment. Thank you, Catherine. Um, Franca, I'll, I'll go to you for the, the same question, please. Yes, well, in 1973, uh, I, I started in the commission as a stagiaire in DG competition. Uh, Competition, as we know today, is very, very important, very influential and very powerful. But back then, as far as I can recall, they were just contemplating their navels as to what they might do with the powers they had under the treaty. Uh, and very little happened in that sector until I think Peter Sutherland came along and started to uh, really exercise the powers that the Commission had in competition law uh, under the treaties. Um, I, I went from, from, um, from well, before I, I, I went from the commission finishing my stage to the parliament, but while I was a stagiaire, I think the most notable contribution that I made to my presence in the um, commission was organizing the first ever stagiaire's party. Uh, which has become quite an institution over time uh, for all stagiaires, uh, together with um, another stagiaire from Kerry, Liam Crowley, unfortunately, who has passed away a few years ago. Uh, we put together um, uh, the first party. We were, we were um, motivated really by the fact that uh, Ireland had arrived in Europe. Uh, we had a presence in the European Economic Community but nobody had done anything to mark the occasion. So we felt we should, we should do something to, to tell everybody else there that Ireland had arrived. So we got together with uh, assistance from Irish distillers, uh, from the various um, bodies that were represented in Brussels at the time, Aer Lingus, Port Falta, uh, Irish Dairy Board, and um, some very helpful officials. And we organized uh, 
uh, a reception with uh, posters of Ireland around the Rotund, which is the uh, cafeteria restaurant uh, in operation at that time. And uh, we had a great night. And uh, it became um, an institution in itself thereafter, and is still uh, quite uh, something that uh, marks the uh, stage of every individual that serves in the Commission. Uh, turning to the more serious aspect of, of, of the question, as um, Catherine said, like uh, um, people were very much still uh, at a form formative stage in developing uh, the uh, European economic community. Uh, from, from the Irish point of view, agriculture naturally was the big issue, followed by the, the structural funds. And um, we were um, fortunate in a way to have Dr. Paddy Hillary as uh, an Irish commissioner. Uh, he was um, honoured by being appointed a vice president of that commission. And uh, he um, was responsible for social affairs. And, and um, most notably, he was responsible for introducing equal pay for equal work. And um, that legacy, I think, uh, is still fondly remembered uh, to this day. Um, so, what else was dramatic? Certainly, the the uh, arrival of an Anglophone uh, 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 member states in the UK, Ireland, and and Denmark, whose second language was English, um, that um, was something quite alien to those that were already the, there under the old six uh, member states, and uh, the the English language um, began to to have a growing influence, uh, but it didn't really, it didn't really, uh, I suppose, surge forward until uh, a much later stage when um, Sweden, Finland and, and Austria joined in. Um, certainly Finland and Sweden uh, were more Anglophone than Francophone. Uh, and it was only at that stage that uh, the, French, the use of the French language as a working language in the institutions went into serious decline. Thank you, Frank. And having been to one of those stagiaire parties, I can attest to their, their fun and, and that legacy, which I, I didn't know you held. Um, Francis, we can go to you with the same question next, please. I, I joined the European Parliament in February 1979, which was a very good time to join because... Uh, I, I managed to see a few months of the old nominated parliament. And I remember the European parliament unbelievably on that, my first week in the parliament met in, had a plenary in Luxembourg, a tiny little plenary uh, room, which you can still visit. And next to it was a not very big room, which was the parliament bar. And I went in there and several of the MEPs of different nationalities said, you must be new here, we haven't seen you, which gives you an idea of how small uh, the parliament was before direct elections. It was 198 members. And of course, uh, Catherine mentioned all, and Frank, the increase in the number of member states. But I think the increase in size is one of the most striking things since Ireland joined. You know, now the European Parliament has a theoretical uh, ceiling of 751. At the moment, it's only 705, but it'll almost certainly go up again. So size is a huge uh, difference. It, for me, it was also fascinating because I'd worked for a couple of years before in a big multinational company, which had senior manager cafeteria, me middle managers, junior 
uh, and other other staff cafeteria extremely hierarchical very formal so i used to jokingly say well i've been gone from the very bureaucratic private sector to a much more freewheeling and entrepreneurial and informal public sector because when i arrived in the parliament we really were very small i was introduced to the parliament secretary general in my very first uh, my very first week um and it was a great environment it was like catherine said more french speaking than english speaking maybe english was a little bit more used in the parliament already than in the commission but still a lot of our meetings were in uh, uh clearly were in french um it was also an imperfect hierarchy maybe that's a little bit of a difference from the uh the other institutions um when i arrived i was sent to an economic committee and my first chairman was a uh, a French Gaullist baron called Edgar Pisani. But after a few months, he was replaced by a completely unknown uh, French politician called Jacques Delors. So he was my first real chairman for the first two and a half years. And it was fascinating uh, to work with him. But what I also very much liked, maybe this is the anarchist in my character, I loved the fact that I was navigating between bureaucracy and the and the political world so uh sometimes my german head of unit would say you must or head of division it was then francis i'd like you to do this and i i'm terribly sorry the rapporteur i'm working for doesn't want me to do that and then of course the politician asked me to do something which i thought was awkward then i could say i'm afraid my my uh bureaucratic boss doesn't want me to do it so i had to navigate between the two but i found it gave a surprising uh freedom but what I was also very lucky was after 79 uh, may june 79 the european parliament was directly elected and there was a tremendous feeling of excitement in the parliament in those early days but it was a very different sort of parliament which was going to grow and get more powers i suppose what we didn't realize is how powerless we were at the time and when i think that we only had consultation we didn't even have two columns of text for the first year or two when we made amendments to commission proposals we just suggested amendments in resolutions like non-legislative resolutions today and a very important point was that we had no connection at all with the council individual meps depending on their political background might have but the staff of the parliament uh, didn't and our committee meetings held around small table in Boulevard de l'Empereur in Brussels, uh, we were not on the current form of up on a chairman on the podium and all the students down on the uh, uh, on the floor looking up at the chairman. We were all sitting around a table, so there was a great feeling of complicity between staff and parliament and um, and MEPs, um, and it was a. Uh, it was an amazing place to work but everything every time we discussed a commission proposal it was the commission official who not only presented the commission proposal as was normal but also told us what was happening in the council working groups and the progress so we had no direct link and of course uh since then the european parliament has not only grown as in this in size but enormously in powers not only because of the the successive treaties beginning with the single european act right up to the lisbon treaty each of which 
to varying extents gave the European Parliament more powers, but it also changed the institutional balance over time. And I remember after the Maastricht Treaty effectively gave co-decision, an earlier form of co-decision to the European Parliament. I remember a council official who I had met once or twice socially in, in Brussels, ringing me up and saying, Francis, would you like to meet for lunch in the council cafeteria? We need to know each other better. And uh, that was a really important symbolic moment because then the European Parliament was able to work not only just with the Commission, but increasingly with the Council and could make alliances depending on the, uh, on the issues. It was a real change in culture uh, and it was a very, very striking uh, development in the Parliament. And of course, just maybe finally, um, I won't go into the different powers that the European Parliament uh, has developed since I joined, as I was 37 years in the European Parliament until 2016. But I would just maybe highlight not only the legislative powers, which I've mentioned, from consultation to cooperation to co-decision, and then to almost complete co-decision after the Lisbon Treaty, but also a number of powers which national parliaments didn't have, apart from the US Congress, perhaps, which was power over appointments, which gradually developed over time. And then the European Parliament itself built on those powers and its rules of procedure in agreements with the Commission and so on, and, and introduced, for example, in its own rules of procedure, the idea of confirmation hearings for the president of the European Monetary Institute first, for the Commission, uh, the new Commission, and so on. And Jacques Delors told uh, Jacques uh, uh, Santa that he absolutely shouldn't agree to this idea of confirmation hearings, but Santa was very weak after having just scraped through his own vote in the Parliament, non-binding, by the way, but he took it very seriously. And he agreed to confirmation hearings, and the rest is history. And since then, they've become part of the architecture. And I'm often struck when I look at the powers of the European Parliament, how many of them are more similar to those of the US Congress than they are to many of the national parliaments within the European Union. So, since Francis mentions um, the, the, the transformation in the Parliament of direct election, and also Jacques Delors, I just want to say that for me, as a, a young official in the early years, the arrival of Jacques Delors as president of the Commission, that was a huge turning point uh, in terms of the way the Commission operated and saw itself. It was like an electric shock going through the place because suddenly the whole system was required to perform to a much higher level, more seriously. Um, he had a very strong Commission. Uh, Francis has already mentioned Peter Sutherland but you also had people like um, Lord Cofield there. And this was the beginning of the internal market, uh, which has mm. done so much for Europe's economic success um, in the subsequent years. Uh, because again, people forget now, but when we joined, we still had trade barriers between member states. And even when Spain and Portugal joined, they had transition periods mm. before they would have full access to the internal market. So um, there were moments when suddenly everything changed and a big leap forward was made. But I think for the parliament, it was obviously direct elections. And I would say for the commission, it was um, the arrival of Jacques Delors and making the commission see itself differently 
um, mm. to be more accountable for high quality policy making rather than dashing off uh, little proposals over a weekend, which you know sometimes happened then. So just to to yeah, if, if I could just quickly jump in on that very point, I'd love to know a little bit more about how Jacques Delors was actually influenced by his time as a committee chair in the European Parliament before he had the interregnum of being French finance minister under Mitterrand. Um, because it was actually an illustration of how much the European Parliament, if it had the energy to do so, could actually achieve in the absence of many formal powers. Because I remember how much time we discussed in the committee the need for a single market and Delors was very, very supportive of, ironically, many of them were the British Conservative members who were saying, we need to move away from just an approach on tariffs and that's gone. What we need now are all, is to tackle all the non-tariff barriers, all the regulatory obstacles. And Delors was very responsive. And what was extraordinary in the light, of course, of subsequent falling out of the Conservatives was the fact that they were, they really liked Jacques Delors' approach to the the committee chairmanship. They found him pragmatic, they didn't find him ideological, and they liked the fact that he really responded to the concerns about the single market. And I think if you look back at some of the things which then emerged in the 1992 single market program, how many of the ideas were explored within the Economic and Monetary Committee as it was then, which dealt with the single market in the parliament in the early 1980s. And it made a big impression on me. So when it then subsequently Delors hit the ground running in the commission. I was interested in the extent to which he'd built on that and had been influenced by that experience. Yeah, um, if I could make a comment about uh, Jacques Delors, what struck me uh, was that, I mean, he was a very, uh, uh, how would I say, uh, uh, exceptional leader, but uh, he, he stood up to the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, the European Parliament, um, if I may, uh, be, be, take it to extremes, can be quite arrogant at times. And uh, it's certainly extremely ambitious about uh, extending its powers. Um, but Jacques Delors on one occasion during a debate in, in the European Parliament was being uh, under pressure from all sides to do this, to do that, uh, to do the other. And he just stood up and he looked around and he said, no, no and sat down again yeah and i think the parliament uh, um had great respect for him because he he was able to stand up to them yeah now, uh, to go back to the early days of the european parliament because I, I worked in the parliament in the 70s before before francis arrived uh and that was the days uh, before direct elections to the european parliament uh it was then very much a, a gentleman's club type of um assembly uh, and um, the late Brian Lennon senior once referred to it as a rabble without responsibility. Uh, it was made up of, of uh, TDs and senators and MPs from national parliaments and they came to Brussels and Luxembourg and Strasbourg a few days a week and went back to their national parliaments uh, and there was a lot of interaction uh, at that time between national parliaments hmm. and uh, the European institutions. But, <clears throat> but uh, uh, when direct elections came around, um, that changed. And uh, there has been a void ever since between national parliaments and uh, the European parliament in particular. 
uh, and uh, we, we talk in terms uh, quite frequently of, of Europe being too distant from the citizen. Uh, I would say that a lot of the problem is that um, the European institutions are too distant from national parliaments. And uh, there's a kind of them and us uh, situation that has arisen that isn't very healthy for the future of, of uh, the European Union. Um, a couple of other comments I might make uh, about the parliament in the early days. Uh, of course, the, the European parliament was not an official title of the institution. The treaties refer to it as an assembly. And um, uh, that, that would have been very much in line with French thinking as uh, what the role of a national parliament is. Uh, they, they, they don't call, they still call their uh, national parliament uh, the Assemblée Nationale, not, not a parliament. Uh, but the parliament uh, renamed itself way before the treaties uh, came around to accepting that. Uh, equally so, parliament um, uh, invented the term co-decision long before there was any co-deciding uh, in, in legal effect. And <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the first version of co-decision, as we know it, gave the final word uh, if, if uh, agreement couldn't be reached between the institutions, the council could decide uh, eventually uh, without reference to parliament. But at that time, Francis was right, um, the, the relationship between the parliament and, and the council was uh, pretty dismal. And uh, even when I joined the council in 1991, years later, um, the attitude within the council secretariat uh, was, uh, is there an opinion from the parliament? Because the, the, the treaty laid down the parliament should give an opinion on pieces of legislation that were uh, under discussion. And uh, all they want to know was, did the opinion exist? Uh, they didn't, they weren't interested in the content of it. Uh, but it was only when co-decision came around that uh, attitudes changed because they had to change. And um, I, I remember the Secretary General of the Council saying to me when I took my post responsible for interinstitutional relations, which by and large was uh, uh, looking after relations between Council and Parliament. He said to me, Mr. Wall, he says, um, uh, we need to improve our relations with the European Parliament. So um, I set about undertaking that task against I, I a lot of hostility um, and ignorance within the ranks of the Council Secretariat and, and the member state delegations uh, and the working groups and council. They didn't care what Parliament had to say by and large. They were more interested in hammering out uh, a conclusion amongst themselves with, of course, the active participation of, of the Commission. And the Commission, to, to be fair to it, would quite often uh, intervene saying that, well, there's a very strong view along this line and that line from the Parliament. And um, But uh, until co-decision kicked in and was working uh, smoothly, the Parliament was largely ignored. Yeah, and of course it was the isoglucose decision um, which in a way kickstarted the European Parliament's in greater involvement on legislation, because that was when the court found in favour of the European Parliament, when the Council indeed had acted without waiting for Parliament's uh, opinion. So that was a really important 
uh, psychological moment. But way, Frank, to, on some of your points, on the arrogance point, I mean, all institutions feel that about uh, about each other, but they also, it's a much more complex thing. And as you say, the parliament does respect people who don't agree with it, as long as they have good arguments. And Delors was obviously enormously respected within the European parliament and other people who've said, we don't agree with you, are also respected. And people who cave in too easily are sometimes uh, not so uh, respected. But where you, the first version of co-decision, you're right, it was originally called that really catchy title of the Article 189B procedure. And no wonder that the parliaments calling it co-decision gradually took on, because that was an appalling uh, title. But on your point about the uh, the parliament being called an assembly, Margaret Thatcher, of course, can always refer to it as an assembly if she possibly could. She never referred to it as a parliament. It wasn't a real parliament for her. But the parliament started calling itself a parliament in the early 1960s, when there were no British or Irish members, when there were the French members were arguably the most important. So even the French members of the European uh, Parliament, nominated members from national parliaments, believed it should be called a parliament rather than a, an, an assembly. And by the way, you were wrong about one other thing, about the overriding of the parliament in the first version of co-decision. There was an extremely cumbersome procedure where if there was a breakdown in conciliation between the parliament and council, um, if there were, uh, the council could go back and impose the original common position. But it also provided for uh, the parliament, rather US congressional style, to override uh, the imposing of a common position. And the only time the council ever tried it, uh, the European parliament overrid it. Uh, and it was never used again and was then dropped in the Amsterdam Treaty. Sorry for the historical record, but I remember that episode well, being very involved in it. On a more social note, I mean, I, one thing that Frank uh, triggered in my memory, he, he referred to the unelected parliament as a gentleman's club. Hmm. And it's hard to imagine now how very male all the institutions were. Yes, I mean, there was no female commissioner yes. uh, for a long time. Uh, the other thing that we all have forgotten about is that the big countries had two commissioners um, and that really changed the um, dynamic of debate because Commissioner A from a big country would say, I'd like to propose something or other and Commissioner B would come in and say, that's a very good idea. And immediately you begin to build momentum, mm. whereas with only one commissioner, they have to argue their case a lot better in order to convince others. Um, but but really, anecdotally, one thing that I remember, which it would now cause absolute horror, was um, at every weekly commission meeting, there would be cigars, cigarettes and everything else on the table of the commission meeting room. Um, and uh, gradually they moved to a side table in the room, then they moved to outside the room and then they disappeared altogether. But just, you know, as a sort of chronicle of social history to go from an all male cigar smoking uh, weekly meeting. And after lunch, I think they often used to bring a little tipple back in with them to the table as well, because the meetings went on all day in those in those years. Um, so, you know, that kind of way of living has changed totally in the time that in the 50 years that we're talking about, it was a very different time then. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Catherine, about, you know, in the early days of European Parliament, I can't remember whether it was after direct elections, there seemed to be an increase in the number of women, but it was still, mm -hmm. what, 10%? And now it's close to 40%. So a huge 
yeah. uh, difference. Slow but, slow I, but steady. <laughs> slow but steady. But the, the other thing is the, the greater formality. Uh, I think I mentioned in my first comment, but I, I joined a powerless but very informal and very cozy European Parliament where relations between MEPs and staff were very close. And now, with the enormous growth, not only in the political group staff as well as the permanent staff, but also the huge development in the number of personal assistants to MEPs, the distance, when I look at my current, uh, my successors, the people who work in the European Parliament now, they enjoy far more powers when they're working with the MEPs, but that it's a much less cozy parliament. It's much more, more distant. Um, and I think that that's, you know, in some ways a sad change, but it, it has become more bureaucratic. It's mm. become probably more hierarchical. And uh, certainly the, the idea of MEPs and staff sitting down and, uh, and kind of saying, should we come up with confirmation hearings? I can still remember discussions in the bar in Strasbourg with some a Portuguese MEP who said, I think that US congressional idea is a great idea. And we were saying, fantastic, let's investigate a little bit more how the Ways and Means Committee organizes things in the States and so on. And that kind of relationship, I think, is probably much less deep than it is in the... I don't know how much the Commission or the Council Secretariat have changed over time. I get the impression that the Council Secretariat has changed rather less. Um, but I think perhaps has the Commission become more or less hierarchical? I don't know. The Commission, if in, to my way of looking at it, has become less hierarchical in mm. the sense that um, it was very formal and uh, uh, very serious, you know, the use of VU for 20 years, talking to other colleagues and things like that. Um, and also, you know, the use of calling people by their Christian name is only something that came in in more recent years. Um, I, what I think has changed in the commission is, you know, the secretariat general is no longer um, the, the sort of controlling part of officialdom that it, that it was under Emile Noel. But I also think um, uh, the, 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 the way in which the EU has developed has made the commission um, inevitably focus on big strategic priorities. In the early years, you know, anybody who whispered in the ear of a commissioner could plant the idea of getting a proposal on something or other. Um, but that that actually led to, I think, over the years, a build up of feeling that the EU was interfering in, in the daily lives of citizens in a way that they didn't um, want. Mm -hmm. So there has been much more concentration on um, the president having a program for their term of office on a legislative program that can be communicated on in advance, consulted on in advance. Um, so there, it's it's a much more serious operation than it used to be, and I think in a way, um, the interaction between Commission, Parliament, and Council has become more cooperative. Um, I do in my own time remember working with the secretaries general of the other institutions and whether we agreed or disagreed with what our bosses um, were currently arguing mm. about, we felt our job was to make the system work, um, you know, to, to make sure that decisions could be taken if they needed to be taken and that they were well prepared and to work on a better understanding between the institutions. Yeah. And I think the this is now we're transgressing into the relatively recent past, but I do think um, the Lisbon Treaty changed a lot in the relationship mm. between the institutions. 
and has required, I would say, more professional cooperation and not just friendly back channels between the different institutions. And that's also to do with size, you know. Yeah. And I think a very important point, building on what you've just said, Catherine, is that the institutions are not homogeneous. Mm. I remember there were lots of institutional and other issues where different parts of the parliament, whether it's the institutional committee, the sectoral committees, the budgets committee, had quite different perspectives and different uh, working uh, relationships. And there were lots of issues. And I, one which interested me a lot because I was involved in the Environment Committee was REACH, the, the mm. very sensitive and difficult thing on REACH, where the coalitions were the Environment Committee of the European Parliament, DG Environment in the Commission, and the Environment Council against DG Enterprise uh, and the Competitiveness Council. There were inter-institutional coalitions. Yes. And yeah. one thing, Frank, I know that there were some people within the council secretariat who had difficulty cooperating with the uh, with the parliament staff. But my, as soon as we started working more closely together with the council, especially after the Maastricht Treaty on co-decision, I, I generally had very good relations with, um, with the council secretariat. And sometimes, you know, with a committee, how can you generalize in the commission, such a big institution? And we, we had wonderful relations with individual commission officials. But sometimes we found we were more on the same page with certain council officials who were used to breaking, brokering deals between member states and the parliament between political groups than some commission officials who were very attached to their particular policy proposal and were less uh, inclined to compromise. But you can't generalize about that. It was... I, I think when you're talking about the role of the council, um, the council is really, if you like, two, two parts. There's the council secretariat, mm. and it's very much a secretariat uh, there to uh, support the, the, the meetings of uh, uh, delegates and, and uh, uh, from member states and ministers at the council, uh, uh, at the highest level of, of the council. And the role of the secretariat always has been to, um, uh, to, to support the presidency uh, at meetings at uh, all levels, working group right up to, to council of ministers, um, and, and to broker uh, uh, and support, uh, you know, come up with compromise proposals uh, that's the, the the main contribution of the, the secretariat when you co-decision came along you had to factor in very much uh, what parliament had to say as well and uh, it took a while for the majority of uh, staff members in the council mm. to you know make that contact with uh, their counterparts in, in the in, in the parliament. Now, of course, they did have ongoing contacts with the commission at all times because uh, the commission is is a, a constant participant in in the working groups and uh, meetings in in the council. And quite often within the secretariat, uh, we would meet uh, informally with the commission officials and uh, hammer out compromise proposals that they could sell to their commission commissioner uh, bosses mm. and that we could sell uh, to the presidency and and the member states in, in council so it, it it was um 
uh, it was a role very much of, of, uh, of brokering uh, agreements. Uh, and um, the parliament entering into the, uh, the scene added another factor to it, but uh, it, it was just like having an, another member state around the table in a way. Thank you very much, Catherine, Frank and Francis, for those insights into the institutional changes since Ireland joined the then EEC. In part two of this episode, which is also available on our Spotify channel, we explore the changes that took place nationally upon accession and will cast an eye to the future of the EU institutions. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. 